0: You got your Bibles open up to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 as we are about to conclude in the next three weeks the book of 1 John. Today I want to talk to you about the fact that if you're a Christian, you are an overcomer. Now, I'll tell you what, when I when I wrote out that title, immediately Mandisa's song just popped in my head. You know, you could just hear her just belting out you're an overcomer. You know, And I love that because it's truthful. If you are a Christian, you are an overcomer. You've overcome this world. You have overcome death. You have overcome Satan. You've overcome so much. And that's what John wants to delve into in this passage, that you're an overcomer. But here's the thing. A lot of people don't realize that Jesus himself had spoken these very words in a lot of ways to the different churches in the book of Revelation. In fact, to all seven churches, he proclaimed that they could be overcomers and that they would receive incredible rewards. In fact, to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2-7, the loveless churches they are called, he says this, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In other words, to those that overcome, to those that have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will live. Eternally To the church of Smyrna, which was the persecuted church in Revelation 2.11, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now you say, well, what does he mean by the second death? Well, the second death is referring to that judgment where God sentences people to an eternal hell. As Christians, ones that have overcome through the power of Jesus Christ, we have no fear of hell. We have no fear of that second death. Then he goes on and he speaks to the church of Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17. This is known as the compromising church. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him of the white stone and the stone a new name written which no man knoweth, saving that he that receiveth. So he offers them two rewards to those that overcometh. Verse 1, that will eat the hidden manna. In other words, God will make provision for them throughout all of eternity, and to them a white stone, and which is given a new name. And I don't know about you, but I like the idea of God giving me a new name. I was lost and now I'm found. I was a follower of Satan, now I'm a follower of Christ. He's given us a new name. To the church of Thyatira that is known as the corrupt church in Revelation 2, 26, he says, and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. In fact, what he's talking about there is he's talking about during the millennial reign, we will rule and reign with Christ. One an amazing Amazing promise that's given there. To the church of Sardis, which is known as the dead church in Revelation 3 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I'll not blot out his name of the book of life, but I'll confess his name before my Father, before his angels. In other words, what he's saying there is he's saying, first off, The first promise is that they'll have white raiment. They'll be dressed in the purity and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't understand why that's important, it's understanding that when we stand before God one day, we won't stand before Him in our current position, but we will stand before Him dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We will be pure as Christ is pure, righteous as Christ is righteous. And so this white raiment that is given to them is that promise and assurance. And then he says, I'll confess you before my Father. Isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ himself said, you confess me before man, then I'll confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before man, then I'll deny you before my Father. But here he makes this promise to them that overcome, to those that confess him, then he will confess them before his Father. To the sixth church, the church of Philadelphia, known as the faithful church, in verse 12 of Revelation 3, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out, and I'll write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I'll write upon him my new name. In other words, he'll be a pillar in the kingdom of God. What an amazing blessing. In other words, to understand that you're a pillar means you won't lose that blessing, you won't lose that promise. You are a stable foundation in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, once you get to heaven, you're not leaving. You're not getting out. That's your eternal home. And then finally, even to the lukewarm Laodicean church in Revelation 3 and verse 21, he says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and sat down with my Father in his throne. Isn't it amazing that even those in the lukewarm church, if they overcame the sin within their lives and the confession of their need for Jesus Christ, they would one day be able to enter into the very throne room of God. Do you realize what an amazing picture that must be? being able to get into the presence of God, being able to be there with the one who created us, the one who loved us, the one who saved us, the one who gives us everything that we have in this life. We will be able to enter into his throne room. Man, when I think about that, what a blessing. Now, here's the thing. Every one of you in here today, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you've committed yourself to him, if you're surrendered to him, if you're living for him, then you can know that these promises of overcoming are an assurance for you. So today we're going to look at this in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to look at four steps to overcoming the world. Now a lot of this seems to be what John has already stated with just a little bit of a tweak to it. And we're going to understand why he's implying these things to us today. But the first thing we're going to look at is we must believe in Jesus. Look at the beginning of verse 1. We're just going to read the first part of verse 1 and then verse 5. He says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is The Christ is born of God. In verse 5, Who is he that overcometh the world? He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, God has already told us, Jesus himself said, To those who believe in me, they have the right to become children of God. Belief is such a vital and important aspect of the Christian faith. Now, here's the issue. The word believe as Christians, we can actually make it less than what it really is. Because if we use the world's definition of believe, it simply means you just have to believe facts about something. But the actual word pistuo that's used here in the Greek is actually to put one's belief into action. It is trust and it is faith. It is to go beyond mere believing about something and actually putting it into action. In other words, it's not just to believe that if I flipped on the switch, the lights would turn on. It's to actually go over there and flip on the switch so that the lights turn on. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not just saying He's a part of who I am. He is all of who I am. I'm putting everything i have into jesus christ jesus himself said i'm the way the truth and the life no man cometh unto the father but by me there's only one belief there's only one way now let's be honest the world wants you to believe that there are a multitude of ways that there are many ways to get to heaven in fact you can ask many other world religions and you can say what is the way to god and they say well we believe this but we believe that there are many ways can i tell you something christianity is an exclusive club it is There's one way, okay? Muhammad's not going to get you there. Buddha's not going to get you there. It's only through Jesus Christ. You can't have Jesus Christ plus something. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. That's it. And that's what he declares. You must believe that. And he says these two facts. You must believe that he is the Christ. Now, I know for many of you this might be something new, but Christ was not Jesus' last name, okay? It wasn't. They didn't have last names. In other words, usually you were known, he would be known as Jesus, son of Joseph, son of and on down the line like that. Christ was actually his position. It was his calling. And what does that mean? It means he would be the Messiah, the one that was proclaimed from long ago, that he would fulfill all of the Old Testament Scriptures. In other words, when you proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, you're saying, we believe that he is the one we've been waiting for, longing for, looking for, that he's the one that was promised. He's the one that's going to bring salvation. He's the one that's going to unite the world. He's the one that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess we're professing that that's who Jesus is. That Jesus and Jesus alone is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the promised one, the living one, the righteous one, the holy one. That's what we proclaim. And if you're not willing to profess all of that, you're not a Christian. You're not. He says don't claim it. In fact, in First John 2, he's already spoken this. In First John 2, and verse 22, when he says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. Says he's an antichrist. In other words, he's against Christians. If you can't proclaim that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, I love what C.S. Lewis used to say. C.S. Lewis made this statement he said, Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He said, you can't have it any other way. Those people try to say, well, Jesus was a good man. That's not good enough. To Say he was a good prophet. That's not good enough. You must declare he is the Christ. He's the son of God. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the promised one. You must declare those things. When C.S. Lewis said that, he said, here's the reason why. He said, Jesus proclaimed to be Lord. Jesus proclaimed to be God. Jesus proclaimed to be the Son of God. Jesus proclaimed that he was the only way. In other words, that means either Jesus lied when he proclaimed those things because you're declaring he's just a good man or he's a good prophet. He either lied or he's a lunatic because he was crazy to proclaim those things because you can't proclaim those things and then be expected to be considered sane. He said, or he's Lord. He's exactly who he proclaimed to be. He said, that's all there is to it. So when you proclaim that he is the Christ, just like Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16, he said, I believe you are the son of God, the Christ. You are who we've been searching for. You are who we've been waiting for. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, they were told that he was the Christ was to be born unto them. He was told this to the shepherds. He's the Christ. He's the chosen one. In verse 5, it says, And he who overcometh the world must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's, it's always interesting when you talk about the Trinity. right? A lot of people don't understand the Trinity. Can I, just, can I just go ahead and be bold in telling you this right here, right now? If you understand the Trinity 100%, you're impressive. You're, that's impressive. Because you've got a divine mind, because only God can comprehend and understand that three are one and that the one are three. There are three persons. And Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. That doesn't mean that He was born of God because He's always existed with God. John one one tells us that. He has always been since the beginning. He always has been and always will be. He is eternal. Now He became the Son of God in order to come and die on the cross for our sins so that we might understand God's greatest payment for us. He submitted Himself to the will of God and to the plan of God the Father so that He might do the things that God had asked Him to do. And then you've got the Holy Spirit. But what? What we're talking about here is to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God is to believe that he did and fulfilled everything that the Father asked him to do. John wrote in John 20 and verse 31, he said, I write these things that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, earlier in John's epistle in 1 John four fifteen, Jesus said, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelt in him and he in God. In 1 John 5, 13, he'll later write, These things have I written unto you, that you believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. A lot of people don't realize doctrine is still important today. There are a lot of churches that don't teach doctrine. They don't want to dig in deep. Can I tell you something? It's time for you to start getting off of the milk and start eating the meat of God's Word. The problem today is there are a lot of Christians that are still busy being bottle-fed when they need to be digging into the very Word of God. And let me tell you something. There are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand, but it is good when it's hard to understand that you dig in deeper so that you might comprehend it, you might apply it, and you might live by it. It's not something that we should avoid. It's something that we should confront head-on. It's something that we should search out, something we should study, because we have a love for God. Here's the thing. When you got married, how many of you, when you got married, you studied that person? You wanted to know what, how many of you men try to make your wives happy? How many of you men are going home alone today? (laughs) Right? You know the statement of mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, Right? So you, you studied them. You, you learned what makes them tick. You learned what makes them happy. You wanted to know more about them. That's why you married them, right? You married them because you wanted to get deeper in that relationship with them and know them more. When you become a Christian, we should delve in deep because of our love for God. We want to know more of God. We want to get consumed in God. We want to be digging in deep into the Word of God so that we might know what God wants us to know about himself. We should study Him because we love Him. He says you got to believe these things about Jesus, that He's the Christ, that He is the Son of God. The second step to overcoming the world is to love God and believers. At the end of verse 1, He says this, And everyone that loveth Him, that beget loveth Him, also that is begotten of Him, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. How many of you would say you love God this morning? Some of y'all are like, I'm a good Baptist. I don't raise my hand, right? You love God. The Bible says that that's important. In order to call yourself a Christian, you must love God. You must love him with all your heart and soul and mind, according to Matthew chapter 22. you got to love him with everything that you are. To love God is to give God everything that you are. It's to love him because he first loved you, because he gave so much for you. We're called to love God, but he says this. He says, if you love me, you'll love your brothers, If you love me, you'll love other Christians. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's not easy, is it? It's not always easy to love other Christians. It's not always easy to love somebody else. But the Bible says if you love God, you're going to love his church. You're going to love his bride. You're going to love his children. Now, I've used this before, and I want to use it again because I want you to comprehend something. Because it always blows me away when people say, Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't like church. I hear it all the time. There's all those hypocrites in church. That's fine. Come on. Add one more to it. Right? That's just fun. Come on. We'll allow you to join with us. But here's the truth of the matter. And I say this all the time. If if you're married and you have a friend that came up to you one day and said, You know what, man? I like you, but I can't stand your spouse. How long do you think you'd be friends? Well, I'd take that personally. Why? Because she and I are one. And if we're one, if you don't like her, then you don't like me. It's that simple. And if that's true, how can we claim to love God and not love his bride, his children, his church, his people? He says, you can't. You absolutely can't do it. In fact, John has emphatically poured over this after verse, after verse, after verse in 1 John. 1 John 2, 10 and 11. Look at this. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there's none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whether he goeth, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John 3 and verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither. He that loveth not his brother. Verse 14 of that same chapter. We know that we pass from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Death, verse 17. But whoso hath this world's good, seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Chapter 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. Verse 12. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Verses 20 and 21. If a man saith, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. I mean John just wants you to know you better love each other. Who's to say you won't be neighbors in heaven? I'll build a fence. we got to love each other. You can't say you love God but hate your brother. You can't do it. The Bible makes it clear that love is a defining goal of us as Christians. And if we don't love each other, we can't claim to love God. It's impossible. Why? Because here's the thing. God loves every last one of you in here. Isn't that amazing God loves you? You might say, why does God love me? I don't know because I can't figure out why he loves me. In all honesty, I can't figure it out because there's nothing good in me. That deserves the love of God. Nothing at all. And I look at myself and I think, God, how can you love a sinner like me? And it's simply put this way. God is love. And he loves every last person. Now I hear people make the statement, if God is love, why does God send people to hell? Can I just, let me just go ahead and explain this to you. God doesn't send you to hell. You send yourself there when you refuse his precious gift in Jesus Christ. Amen. If you don't want to live with him here, why would you want to live with him there? So he's going to give you what you ask for. And that is to be separated from him forever. That's God's love. He gives you the choice to choose where you want to go, where you want to live all of eternity. That's your choice. God has provided a way. And it is through his love. And he's called us to love other people. The apostles go through all of this as well, over and over again. Jesus himself in John 13 said that we got to love one another. We've got to love the brethren. That's a part of who we are. Paul preaches the same thing. The author of Hebrews preaches the same thing. Peter in 1 Peter 1.22 says the same thing. We are called to love each other. You want to overcome the world? Get some love. Number three, obey his commands. In verse 2, it simply says this in verse 3, and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. One thing I've never understood is someone who claims to be a Christian but doesn't want to know what God wants them to do. I don't like to read the Bible because I don't like to find out what I'm not supposed to do. I mean, that's just like denying when your parents tell you don't eat out of the cookie jar. Well, you didn't tell me not to eat out of the cookie jar. The problem is, is we ought to want to obey His commandments. Here's something we need to understand. The commandments that God has given to us aren't to harm us. The commandments that God has given to us aren't to keep us from having fun, but the commandments that God has given to us are to keep us safe, to keep us healthy, to keep us in line with God. That's why he gives those commandments. I remember one time my parents, when I was out playing in the street, my dad yelled out there at us, get out of the street. How many of you have parents ever tell you get out of the street? Buddy? Pa- why would they tell us to get out of the street? It's more fun in the street. Along comes a dump truck, Right? They didn't tell us that because they hated us or didn't want us to have fun. They told us that for our own safety. When God gives His commandments, that's the whole purpose, is for your safety, for your protection, and for the betterment of your life. God doesn't give you these rules to dog you, to tear you down, to bring you low. He gives these commandments so that we might be living according to His will and His desire, and it is the best life we can live when we're obedient. If you don't believe me, They understood it in the Old Testament very well. In fact, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 13, and verse 4, he says this, ye shall walk after the Lord your God, and fear him, and keep his commandments, and obey his voice, and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22, Samuel speaks to Saul, and he says, Obedience is better than sacrifice. We're called to be obedient. The thing is, is not only should we be called to be obedient, we should love being obedient. In Psalm 119 and verse 47, he says, And I'll delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. At the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, Solomon comes to this conclusion. He's, all of life is vanity. He said, But I found out in all of life there's two things that we need to be doing, and one is obeying his commandments. If you don't think that the Old Testament writers were faithful in this, Jesus was also proclaiming this time and time and time again. In Matthew chapter 12, and verse 50, Jesus proclaimed it this way, For whoso shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. He said, you want to be able to proclaim that you're mine? Then you're going to be obedient to the Father. In the Gospel of John chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus says, Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples in Deed. In John 14 and verse 15, he says it numerous times in this chapter. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He goes on in verse 21. He says, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Verses 23 and 24. Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. If you love God, you'll obey Him. How many of you parents have ever tried that with your children? Right? It works so well. If you love me, you're going to listen to what I tell you to do. And then what do they do? Go and do the opposite a lot of times, right? How many of you are acting like children when it comes to the things of God? God has spoken. His word is clear. The old bumper sticker drives me nuts. It says, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. No, no, no. God said it. That settles it whether you believe it or not. Amen. His commandments are true. They're real. Whether you want to obey them or not. The truth of the matter is, if you want to be a child of God, the Bible makes it very clear, you're going to do the will of God. If you're not doing the will of God, then you might out have to question your relationship with God. We're going to keep His commandments. And here's the thing. He says they're not grievous or they're not burdensome. Think about that for a moment. You don't look at the commandments of God as being killjoy. You don't look at the commandments of God as being burdensome. All these are so hard to follow. They're so. Can I explain something to you? Read Leviticus. And thank God Jesus paid for all of that. If you think the commandments that we as Christians have to follow is hard... It's twofold. He gives it in twofold. Jesus himself did. He said you can wrap up the entire Old Testament in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Man, if you do those two things, you're living right. Every commandment can be wrapped up in those two things. Can you imagine the entire Old Testament can be wrapped up in love? And it's not burdensome. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, he says, take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. Let me tell you something. He already took the biggest price for your sin. You want to know what should have been a burden. It should have been a burden when he became your sin and my sin and died on that cross and was separated from the Father so that we wouldn't have to be separated from him. But he didn't find it burdensome. You know, in Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy of the cross... What joy is there in the cross, the excruciating pain, the separation from God, the joy of what it would bring, and that is bringing us back to God. Man, as Christians, we should believe in Jesus. We should love God and believers, obey His commands, and finally have faith in God. Look at verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. You know what's cool? The Greek word for overcome is nikeo, from which we get our English derivative. You ready for this? You might even be wearing some Nike. Overcome. Overcome. In fact, here's what Jesus promised you in John chapter 16 and verse 33. Jesus said, These things I've spoken unto you, That in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He's already defeated the world. And what he's talking about there is he's defeated the world system. He's defeated the sin of this world. He has given us a new hope. He has given us a new life. In fact, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. Nay, in all these things we talking about us, are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We can proclaim that we are more than conquerors. We have overcome the world because we've accepted Jesus Christ who has already defeated the sin, who's already defeated the world. And it says this, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can change that. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have overcome the world. Right, amen. You say, in what way? Well, there's in several ways you've overcome the world. First, you've overcome death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption... And this mortal should have put on immortality. Then she'll be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You realize we've already defeated death. You say, wait a minute, we're still alive. That's right. But the moment we die as Christians is the moment we breathe our last breath here and we take our first one there. We enter into the very presence of God immediately. That means death has no sting. Death cannot defeat you. Death can't take you to hell because the eternal promise is in Jesus Christ that the moment you breathe your last breath is the moment you enter the gates of heaven to be with the one who died for you. You've overcome death. Not only have you overcome death, but the Scriptures teach us that we've also overcome Satan. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, it says, And they overcame him, talking about Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives under death. In other words, the moment you receive the blood of Jesus Christ to pay for your sins, to pay for your eternity, is the moment Satan lost you. He lost you, and he lost you for good. He can't get you back. Why? Because you can't scrub out the blood of Jesus. You can't wipe out our name once it's written in the Lamb's book of life. You have been paid for. You are eternally secure. And it is all done because you have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. We've overcome this world, and we should be celebrating, walking around victorious, knowing. Why? Because you ready for this? This world is not our home. The book of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us that. It says, for our conversation is in heaven. Our home is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You realize that in this world, we're just passing through. Paul says that this is but a mere tent. Aren't you thankful that your, your earthly body is just a tent? That this isn't the body we get up there? I'm hoping I get a little hair in heaven. I don't know. <laughs> but you think about it. This is not what we take with us. The bodies that are put in the ground, guess what? That's not what we take with us. Those that have gone on before us, those bodies that are in the ground are not what they take with them. They receive a glorified body, a body that will have no pain, that will have no heartaches, that will have no hardships, that will not go through any difficulties. You won't have cracking knees, bruised, messed up backs, all kinds of difficulties. You'll have a perfect body in heaven because you've overcome it by the blood of the Lamb. My question for you this morning is real simple, and that is, are you an overcomer? Are you an overcomer? You don't overcome the world By the way you live. You don't overcome the world by doing good works. You don't overcome the world by going to church. And you don't overcome the world by getting baptized. You overcome the world by accepting Jesus' precious sacrifice for you. By taking the blood of Jesus upon yourself who has been given for you. You take that. You receive it. You believe it. And you live for it. That's how you overcome the world. Are you an overcomer? I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of times Christians don't live like overcomers. Can I just tell you something? Difficulties are going to happen in this world. We're going to have hardships. We're going to have tribulations. We're going to go through difficult times. The question is, as a Christian, how do you handle it? Do you handle it as though that's the end of the world? Can I tell you something? That's not the end of the world. What you're going through, what you're facing, what you're battling is not the end of the world. If God is still giving you breath, He's giving you a purpose and He's giving you a reason to live. We need to walk as overcomers. We don't need to fear death even when we lose a loved one. We know where they are. We can walk as overcomers. We can show this world that we believe that Jesus' words are real, that they're true, that they're emphatic. We can show the world that we have overcome them by the life we live because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Are you an overcomer? And are you living like an overcomer?